Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of VibeBio, and VibeBio is an investment platform focused on the biotech industry. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dr. Brett Hall, who's the CSO of Immuneering. We'll be talking a little bit about some of their work in AI, their recent developments in oncology, as well as their perspective on the space at large. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alok. Got to be here. Maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could just perhaps share a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Thank you. Yeah, so a bit of a colorful past. So I started off in the military targeting nuclear missiles right out of high school. And I did that so I could get the GI Bill to pay for college. And I went to Ohio State as an undergraduate and have my degree there in biochemistry. Then went to graduate school at West Virginia University, where I focused on the tumor microenvironment in the 90s when it wasn't a very sexy topic. And Many people believed at the time that really it was the intrinsic drivers of tumor cells that really drove cancer. And then after that, I did a a short postdoc at St. Jude before landing a faculty position back at Ohio State, a tenure track faculty position. I was there for about five years and we were developing models where we were evaluating tumor stromal cell interactions in 3D ECM, extracellular matrix-based assays. And what was really interesting was that the models were doing a really good job of predicting clinical outcomes, but they were doing a terrible job of predicting alignment to preclinical models. So this naturally ended up getting the attention of pharma. I actually ended up transitioning to pharma in the translational medicine group at Johnson & Johnson in 2008. There I had increasing leadership roles, eventually became the head of the translational efforts for the heme disease area stronghold. Uh, I was the translational lead on basically two key licensing events. Uh, the first one was ibrutinib, which became, went on to become a make blockbuster drug that, that many in the oncology field would know, as well as daratumumab. Things were going there. I was in the right place at the right time. was really fortunate. Learned a lot about the translational space. And then I transitioned to Metamune, which was the biologics division of AstraZeneca in 2014. There I was the head of the translational medicine uh, oncology group. After that, I wanted to transition and start to develop drugs that had better chances of development in the clinic. So basically I transitioned out in 2015 to start as CEO of a company here in the local San Diego biotech region called Acellus. And at Acellus, the idea was to use advanced 3D human aligned models to better predict the pharmacology preclinically that would translate into the clinic. The missing piece of the puzzle for us was the roadmap. And the roadmap was basically bioinformatics and computational biology based on patient data. And so I reached back out to Ben Zeskin, the CEO who I'd met years before at Immuneering in 2017, 2018, and then ultimately transitioned to start at Immuneering to combine the best of two platforms, these humanized 3D models with basically a bioinformatic computational blueprint based on patient data. And then basically that in 2018 started to build an oncology pipeline that we now have today at Immunary. Obviously a phenomenal career and I'm sure a lot more to come. I'm really interested in sort of this concept of translatability of in vivo models, especially. We've, as an industry, I think, leaned on them as a crutch, if you will. And a lot of value is ascribed to them, even though the dirty little secret is that many of them don't translate. Obviously, the oncology space is unique in comparison to other indications. We'd love to just hear your thoughts on that broader landscape and what technologies truly do work in that circumstance and what you think we actually should be doing in its stead. Yeah, that's a great question. So 
Big question, but yeah. a very good question. I would say this, one of the driving forces in my career as a tumor microenvironment scientist has been, can you measure it in a human pathophysiologic condition? And if you can, why, and you can incorporate that into your models, why are we not incorporating that into the models? I remember having a conversation at a TME meeting back in the early 2000s, and the conversation went something like, we have to avoid making models more complex for the sake of complexity, mm. but make sure that the models are sufficient to address the question meaningfully in a translatability way, as you mentioned. I thought that was fascinating. One of my favorite quotes of all time is actually, a model is a lie that helps you see the truth. I always add, how big of a lie can you afford your model to tell you? Mm -hmm. So for me, in my entire career, going back, starting in science in this space in the mid-90s to today, it has really been on making sure that the models really do better represent the translational biology or disease that you're trying to better understand. And so for us, you know, the use of 3D humanized tumor growth models, like, so I'll just give you a few examples. The amount of glucose in 2D culture is beyond anything a human cell will see, whether it's tumor or not. Oxygen, 20.9% or 21% oxygen that we breathe is not what is in your capillaries or in your tumors. And so basically you can readdress these in your models by basically humanizing them. And if you do that, then it shouldn't surprise anybody that the translatability should improve. But ironically, that's not what happens. The conversations usually go, that's not how we've done things. I think that's the bigger challenge. And I think right now there's been a huge spread in tumor microenvironment alignment, especially over the last five to 10 years. I think in the post-immune oncology space, a lot of that taught us a lot that the tumor microenvironment really does matter. And so there's been really, I think, a, a resurgence in this in the last five to 10 years. Yeah. Before we sort of get into immuneering the awesome work that you're doing here, I recall from your background that you spent some time, you know, targeting nuclear missiles prior to becoming a scientist. And I'm one generally intrigued by that kind of background and experience, what that was like, but also interested to hear how you juxtapose the best practices, the operating cadence in the military versus say a pharmaceutical company. I'm sure there's some things that overlap, but I'm sure there's some things that unexpectedly are different. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that too. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was growing up in the Midwest, I just knew I wanted out of the Midwest, not because Midwest was bad, but because I just felt that there was so much more out there to see in the world. And so I signed up between my junior and senior year to go to the military. And I told them, I said, look, I don't care what I do. I want to go somewhere, East Coast, West Coast, send me abroad, nowhere near the Mississippi. That was kind of, that, I, think, I think that's what I had said to the recruiter. And they said, you know, Hall, we have your number, just sign here. So I signed up and they were true to their words. So at the time, and that was 1985, they basically, I was supposed to work on the space shuttle and the guidance system on the space shuttle, right? And there was this cooperative, you know, relationship between NASA and the Air Force. And I was going to go to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Mm -hmm. So everything was great. Early in 1986, the space shuttle blew up. Oh, yeah. And so when I went to basic training that summer and to basically learn about guidance systems and electronic systems and support for this, it, apparently the closest thing I was then qualified to do after they closed down the space shuttle program indefinitely at the time and ended up being closed down for a few years, I believe. I ended up saying, they said, well, you're qualified to target nuclear missiles. And I was like, how are these related, right? So <laughs> similar guidance system. So I ended up getting orders to go to Missouri. I met a guy who was from Missouri, wanted to go back to Missouri. I ended up trading orders. I ended up spending four years in South Dakota. So it's not exactly what I thought I would get out of the military, but it was really about invaluable experience. And to your point, I think what happened is 
chain of command, matrixed environments. When you start to think about, you bring multiple leaders from very diverse disciplines together, they all have to function and integrate well together. And that's something that I learned in the military is that you can have basically these very multiple diverse systems. You can have four bird colonels with different skill sets that come together, but they have to work together ultimately to execute on a mission. And I think pharma and biotech is a very similar prospect with the matrix environment. For any of those young in the audience, a matrix environment may sound a little obtuse, but it's not. It's actually a very clear thing. When you think about a committee or a team, each director or person that represents that team will bring a specific skill set that's necessary within the fabric or community of drug development discovery. And so there's all these diverse views and expertise that have to come together if you're going to be successful in drug discovery and development. Yeah. Especially when you are a scientist, there's a lot of pride that you have around being able to do the science the way you think it should be done and a lot of autonomy. Obviously, in the military, it tends to be the opposite where there's a very specific process and order and approach. What facets of the military do you think we should be bringing more into pharma than not? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I would adjust the question a little bit and say this. You're right. The military is really about following orders, following process, following established rules, the norms. When I was in academia and had my own lab, really, I mean, you're kind of king or queen of that domain, right? So long as you're funded. And so you really have kind of absolute ability to do what you want to do where innovation can thrive because you don't have to do it by committee. But at the same time, you're also limited in what you can achieve. In the military, when you have this large multifaceted organization where you follow rules, you can bring a lot of power to bear. And power, I mean, by basically diverse views and contributions to this larger sum of the parts. And so I would say that pharma and drug development is a bit of a blend of the two. And so for me, my transition in going from the military to academia to pharma, what I actually found was this kind of this reversal where you go from this very structured organization, don't ask questions, just follow the rules, to basically almost complete academic freedom, and then to a more guarded matrixed environment. And then as I transitioned to biotech, I love, I feel like it's a blend between academia and pharma in these kind of structures and relationships. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm sure we could spend a whole episode talking through kind of the organizational structures and kind of the dynamics there, but would love to at least maybe dig in a little bit more into immuneering and some of the exciting work that you're doing here. In the current state of the markets, there's obviously a lot of discussion around tension between platforms, products, AI. I know immuneering had some history with, you know, bigger companies like Teva. We'd love to just maybe hear a little bit of that broader landscape and sort of what led immuneering to where it is today. Yeah, absolutely. So the brief history really of immuneering, immuneering started by Ben Zeskin in 2008, right before the economic collapse. So really at a tough time to raise money. So Ben ended up bootstrapping the company initially. And the original driving process or fundamental idea was there are great drugs, but great drugs don't work in all patients. If we could better understand why it works well in some patients and why it doesn't work well in others, can we do that bioinformatically? Could we better understand and then basically make good drugs better? Mm-hmm. And that was really kind of the foundational premise. I actually met Ben when I was in my translational role at Johnson & Johnson back in 2011, 2012, a little over a decade ago. And we were looking to expand some of the efforts we had for computation biology in, in our translational efforts at J&J. And so basically, I knew Ben before the Teva transaction. I think that was in 2015. Teva came in, bought a you know, majority stake in immuneering. 
The idea being that the platform could help them with some innovative drug discovery. It was a pivot for Teva from the generics business. They ended up buying Allergan and a lot of financial changes happened. The generic market collapsed. And so Teva went back to the roots and they basically wanted to continue to do generics work. And so Immuneering basically got the majority stake of ownership back. Now, in the relationship between 2015 and 2018 with Teva and Immuneering, Immuneering was building uh, discovery platforms, these algorithm-based platforms, as well as these AI or machine-based learning platforms to basically do target ID discovery, as well as chemistry work to basically create innovative or novel scaffolds using an AI-based approach. So these platforms were built with the idea of Teva moving into kind of the innovation medicines market. When they basically pulled out, Immuneering was left with those platforms, but as computational biologists and bioinformaticians, right, most of them MIT trained, so really top in their space, they wanted to basically use these tools to really enhance the drug discovery and development process. So they went out, started talking to pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical executives, basically gave a similar feedback, and, and that was, if it's so darn good, then make drugs yourself. And so that was the kind of the feedback that Ben and the team were getting prior to 2018 when I joined. I had a conversation with Ben because I was trying to, as CEO of the company here in San Diego, I was trying to convince him to work with us on the computational side because we were working these 3D models that were all started back when I was in academia to basically create a roadmap you know, between these two platforms. He was really interested in the idea. And so we started talking more and more. And when I started in 2018, the idea was, can we combine our skill sets? Can we combine 3D human tumor microenvironment aligned models, mm -hmm. right? Which will hopefully tell us the littler lies, right? Smaller lies. Mm -hmm. And combine that with the roadmaps to start to identify patient populations and how we may better help them in the cancer space. And so I'll never forget the first conversation I had with Ben. I love the way he looks at things so openly. I think that's rare, something you know we're talking a little bit about. So when I spoke to him, I was like, well, do you have a target in mind? And he says, no target. I have disease states, two key disease states. I said, well, what are they? He says, I want to go after cancer metastasis and cancer cachexia. I said, whoa, mm -hmm. those are big things. And he said, I know. He goes, if it's not bold, then is it worth going after? And it's like, so there's really no answers at the time, you know, and still really to a large part, still are not answers to those fundamental problems in oncology. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, what are your tools? What are the things that, that you can bring? And he says, well, we have these two platforms, this algorithm-based platform that will help us to identify and map out specific key pathways that are driving the disease state, right? And think about it like Bose noise canceling headsets, where the transcriptome in the disease state has some genes up, some genes down. And if you drug these cells, you can reverse that disease state and create an anti-signal, if you will. And so I said, okay, that's interesting. And it's like, well, what's the other one? It's like, well, it's a chemistry, it's an AI-based platform that you only need to put in the primary sequence of the polypeptide hmm. and the platform we call Fluency will basically give you drug structures that should engage that protein. Now, you have to then test if it's functional and everything else. I said, okay, interesting. And, so, and just to be clear, you're putting in the sequence of the protein, you're not even providing a crystal structure. Not even crystal structure, wow. not, not even the secondary structure. You don't even have to tell if it's beta pleated sheets or alpha helices, it's just a straight primary amino acid sequence. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting because yeah. at least, you know, maybe up until AlphaPhil, which is only a year or two old, folks weren't even able to compute from polypeptide sequence to primary, secondary, tertiary structure. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I'll explain because I'm not an AI expert, but I'll explain it the way I've come to understand it. 
which may be helpful. So what AI does, I think of AI, you need a large data set. And so what AI does is you feed it information, the polypeptide amino sequences of the 20,000 plus proteins in our body, Mm -hmm. and then basically a multitude, hundreds of thousands of events where we know that certain molecules engage with proteins in certain ways. So AI just looks for these patterns, unlike a human, right? It just starts to look for any pattern recognition with no bias on what will be a potential interaction. So one of the things we learned early on was that if you look at the way fluency performs, it does a great job if you're looking at ATP competitive inhibitors because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. So it's like a refined older teenager when it comes to being able to predict interactions with an ATP competitive kinase inhibitor. If you go to something like an allosteric inhibitor where there's fewer of them, fewer examples, it's more like a toddler. It takes its best guess and infers as much as it can, but it's just not as refined in the prediction that'll come out the other side, but it still gives you a leg up. And if it can save you 12 to 18 months, that's a lot of time and money. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that brings us to an interesting topic right around this concept of AI and drug development. We're at a point where I think the hype has reached peak hubris. Mm -hmm. Obviously, having been in that space for quite a while, engineering has been the more muted party in this domain and perhaps one that's been more rational. We'd love to hear just a little bit about your take on both the space at large. Give me a little bit more info on Immuring's kind of perspective and approach uh, related to AI and machine learning. So I went in 2018 to this AI drug discovery meeting, and I could tell there were these two major camps. There were those very enthusiastic about what AI was going to do and how you were going to basically get these massive leaps forward at very little cost. And then there were the more grounded group that were really kind of looking at it from a very different view. And I found most of them were chemists. And what was interesting is that the conversation I had with the chemists was different in the sense that I've always viewed AI as a toolkit. Like right now, for example, chat GPT and things like this that we talk about, right, in our just regular day-to-day. When you look at what AI is and what it does, I think back, I'm in my mid-50s now, so I remember when word processors came out and people thought it was cheating to use a word processor to spell correct because it's like, well, you're clearly going to misspell certain words. I don't see AI as a do-all end-all. I see it as a tool that can help accelerate the process and refine the process overall. And so how you integrate that into your end-to-end process of R&D is how it ultimately played. But if anyone's walking around saying AI is just going to do it all, mm-hmm. I think that's hype too far. Yeah, right? interesting. And one thing I would love to better understand also is given your experience in translational work, there's obviously a lot of interest in AI for designing new small molecules or Mm -hmm. antibodies. We don't hear too much about the use of AI in later stages of drug development, whether it's clinical development, patient selection, CMC, et cetera. If you were to take one or two steps outside of discovery, what are some of the other areas that get you really excited about the intersection of drug development and AI? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the challenge and the reason it'll probably be the last frontier for AI, if you will, is one of the things I learned very fast when I transitioned from academia, where I thought I was doing translational work, into pharma, where we really were on the front lines of doing translational studies, was when a patient walks in the door and the doctor's there and they get the diagnosis of cancer, and then they say, the doctor says, we're going to go with treatment X. The patient wants to know, what are my odds? They don't want to know what the probability is. They don't want to know, hey, your odds are 50-50. 
they want to know, well, which 50 am I? And so it really breaks down quick into a binary result. And I think that's going to be the challenge when you start to move into there because there is no room for error. You can't just use general probabilities. You have to really refine. And I think what goes into that is so much more, and there's always going to be a human component to it because I think there's a lot of nuance that you have to consider as well. So I think that's what's going to be the biggest challenge to move AI completely, but as a tool that can help you to refine your translational strategies, hypotheses, I think it could be very powerful. But at the end of the day, you really have to break it down typically into a more of a binary outcome. And that's tougher to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think in the abstract about a clinical trial, clinical trial is actually a summation of individual binary outcomes. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think many people think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And we often look at the aggregate effect of a drug across, let's call it a couple hundred, a couple thousand patients. But in reality, there's probably circumstances where it actually is awesome for a very small subset or a smaller subset of that population, just not good for the others, and then averages out to this sort of more modest kind of number. Yeah. And so very interesting to see how that plays out. Now, obviously, as you've developed kind of these really interesting AI platforms, as well as advanced sort of your own programs, as pharma companies and pharma partners have asked you to sort of show the proof, immuneering has sort of now shifted most of its focus into oncology. We'll have to understand a little bit about that pivot and sort of what prompted that focus. Absolutely. So when I joined in 2018, we had already an effort on neuroscience that was really, so immuneering was focused on the computational bioinformatics around neuroscience and oncology, mainly since its inception. By the time I joined, basically more of the energy that was early transitioning into discovery around neuroscience. So when I came in, I basically brought a very strong focus on oncology. And so I wanted to use these platforms, you know, I mentioned in the conversation with Ben early on, to basically tackle cancer metastasis and cancer cachexia. So we started off on both and we found a really interesting target in cancer metastasis. We haven't disclosed what it is, but it's very interesting. With three ever papers published, it even has a basically an ORF designation because it's just so early. Mm-hmm. The problem with a completely novel target is that the validation part of that process is very long and arduous, right? And there's very little known about it and how broad it is. Uh, So we didn't pursue that. But in the cancer cachexia space, patients who get cancer cachexia often have a RAS mutation, pancreatic cancer, for example, lung cancer, colorectal, are patients that commonly have a mutation in RAS. So when we were looking at our platforms, our platforms were telling us that the MAP kinase pathway, which is downstream, the downstream, one of the downstream angles of RAS, was critical in the disease process both in muscle and in the tumor. And the platform was telling us that inhibition early, three to six hours, but not late at 24 hours, was reversing the disease signature. And so basically what that means is the noise-canceling headsets, the transcriptome was being inverted correctly for three to six hours after exposure to MEK inhibitors. But if you sustained that MEK inhibition for 24 hours, the disease actually amplified its original signal. So we didn't understand at the time what it meant to be early but not late, right? As it turns out, what early but not late is, is adaptive resistance. So we always talk about acquired resistance, right? Acquired resistance is the final blow when basically new clones are selected because they have mutations. But adaptive resistance is the gateway to acquired resistance. And simply what adaptive resistance is in targeted oncology is when you put a specific stress on a tumor cell or any cell, it's either going to die or it'll just adjust its transcriptome 
around the insult that you're putting on it. So in our case, when we were hitting the map Kanye's pathway, we published this in the ROTC in 2021, we actually saw strong upregulation of the wind signaling pathway, which compensated for the loss of the map Kanye's pathway. And so what was interesting is, is that this led to a concept that we call deep cyclic inhibition that we'll talk about a little bit later. But basically what we wanted to do was create a drug that could hit the pathway specifically hard for a short burst and then release. And so this was really kind of untested in the targeted oncology space because pragmatically speaking, or dogma, if you will, is that you must sustain occupancy through the dosing window. You must chronically ablate your target if you have an oncogene that drives the pathway. Mm. That's ultimately the discovery that led us down to the path that opened up our initial part of our portfolio. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'd love to just sort of hear maybe a little bit about the pipeline, sort of where it stands today. And, you know, I know there's some also unique perspectives that you're sort of taking, right, to be able to tackle these diseases. So I'd love to start at least with the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, you know, our platform was really pointing to the map Connie's pathway. That was very interesting for us because it's such a well-validated pathway and RAS and MAC and RAF are all very well-validated and known targets. But our platform was saying you can't target it in the traditional way. It's too toxic. Adaptive resistance is going to be a problem that you're going to have to fight. But we were really interested in this pathway because half of human cancer inappropriately has high activation of this pathway, whether it's by direct mutation of RAS or RAF or loss of other tumor suppressors like NF1 or even activation of receptor tyrosine kinases, which shunt in the pathway, a lot feeds into this pathway. So for us, it was a broad target. And the question was, could we target in a way that didn't lead to the toxicity in the adaptive resistance so that we could have greater clinical utility? And so in that spirit, our first four drug programs that we have, so the first one's in the clinic, we just finished dose escalation. We're now in dose expansion at two doses. And our second program is on track to file IND in the fourth quarter of this year. Mm -hmm. And again, we didn't even start the theory around this until 2018. And then our third program and our fourth program are basically slated. They're in discovery, but they're moving closer and closer to IND. The fourth program is actually targeting RAS in a unique way, also mm -hmm. with deep cyclic inhibition. And so all four programs that we have there, and we have a fifth that's undisclosed at this point because we wanted to broaden out past the map kinase pathway. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to start to look for some of the core features of deep cyclic inhibition outside of the map kinase pathway. So the fifth will be our first one moving outside of the map kinase pathway itself. But what we've done is each of the programs is differentiated by its cadence, how often it disrupts the pathway or the target, and also what the disease state, which could lead to very different dosing and schedule requirements. Interesting. I'd love to dig into the sort of the strategic question and the conversations you had internally when deciding which targets to go after. When we look at traditional platform-based biotech companies, one of the inherent tensions that exist is between the platform, investing in that, and choosing an initial product and target to go after, but then also choosing which target of the targets that might be high potential. I've definitely heard a lot of concerns around choosing a target because it might be the most investable versus a target that might have the greatest scientific and clinical impact for patients, right? Those might not be the same thing. So taking a step back, I'd love to hear your mental model and your thought process around that sort of strategic question when it comes to just sort of choosing the right initial targets for a platform. There's a lot, as you mentioned, there's a lot that goes into it. 
when we started off looking at potential targets using our platform, we were completely agnostic. At the point, what we were asking the platform to do is tell us which manipulations in the specific nodes of these pathways drove reversal of that disease signature. And if we could understand what the nodes were and the pathways that were involved, we could then start to build basically a model around which ones would be most opportunistic for us. Of course, target validation is important, right? If you have a validated target, it's known, but the problem with validated targets is everybody knows about them, right? So the competitive landscape can be really challenging and can you really live within that competitive landscape? Our first two programs are MEK inhibitors. And so they're third generation MEK inhibitors though. It's like, what's that? And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but MEK inhibitors are very crowded space. And so by all accounts, when you talk to most people, most would say that there's very little room to expand in this space. And yet we believe that we can carve out a very large niche within the space because of the way we're approaching this. So I think target validation matters. And if you can broadly address human cancer, that matters because one of the things we decided early not to be was a company that was focused on ultra orphan indications. It's just, there's companies out there like Bridge Bio, for example, who focus on this, right? And it just wasn't what we were doing. What we were looking for using our platforms is, could we help a larger percentage of patients more broadly by going after very big or broad mutations? Yeah, it makes sense. And definitely, I think there was an interesting Twitter exchange that happened recently about target risk versus commercial risk, mm-hmm. right? And pursuing a target that everyone knows about might help you get money, but oftentimes leads you down, as you pointed, right, to a pretty competitive commercial landscape. While there is some schools of thought where a new target, though, may be less investable or greater risk, that risk can be mitigated far more easily and readily through traditional sort of experimentation and drug development activities. So curious to hear where you land on that spectrum. It's a great question. So ultimately, what's interesting about commercial risk to me is I think Gleevec is a good story, right? Gleevec only hits, there's what, approximately 5,000 patients a year that get that specific tumor type that it's very strongly designed for. And the idea was, is there was really no commercial value in developing Gleevec. But then when Gleevec came to the market, it prolonged the patient's lives. Patient's lives then needed Gleevec and it expanded into this multi-billion dollar franchise, right? Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we can be short-sighted on our commercial proposition, but I'm going to throw a twist on commercial twist on this. I remember when in pharma having conversations that were you're trying to line up and try to find the sweet spot between scientific rationale and merit, clinical unmet need, because you can't accrue a trial if there's not unmet need Mm -hmm. into it, regulatory path, as well as commercial opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the conversations go, well, you know, we have a drug, it's going to work really well in triple negative breast cancer because of X, Y, and Z, right? And then the clinician says, yes, that's great because we have a high emet need in triple negative breast cancer. And the regulatory says, hey, we have a pathway. Mm -hmm. And commercial says, hey, we're excited about this too, because really we don't have the competitive landscape. What if the scientist then said, no, no, it's not triple negative breast cancer, TR alpha positive breast cancer. And then the rest of the chain says, well, no, the better opportunities in triple negative breast cancer. So you set up a clinical trial in triple negative breast cancer. This is part of the challenge of clinical development Mm -hmm. where you have to line up all of these diverse points of view to make sure that you have a true path forward. And a lot of times they don't all align up. And this gets back to that matrix environment we were talking about in pharma. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think when you juxtapose the tech world, Mm -hmm. you know, in a tech startup, you have maybe a handful of functions. 
marketing, sales, product engineering, customer success, of course, a bunch of back office, but you know, it's a handful of functions. And to your point, you need only those handful to align for, and even to be honest, if they don't all align, you could still be modestly successful. In drug development, it's kind of all or nothing. And I think that actually the quantity of those functions that have to align is probably 3x, 5x, 10x, right? The number that exists in a comparable company in a different industry. So it, it just probabilistically seems much harder as a consequence. So from there, given the excitement and the data on the horizon for your initial clinical program and others that you're submitting an ID for, as a publicly traded company today, I'm sure there's a lot of additional public market constraints and perspectives that are also sort of shaping how you guys operate. One would love to hear your just sort of general thoughts on the market today, but then also would love to hear a little bit of the arc of the company since you've seen it both as a private venture finance institution to now a publicly traded one? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So the market itself has been incredibly challenging, especially since 2021, right? We've been in the so-called biotech winter. Mm-hmm. I think we were fortunate that the way the company arc, we started our oncology efforts mid-2018. We did our Series A funding about a year, year and a half later. Then we did a Series B shortly after that. And then IPO mid 2021. Mm -hmm. So right before the biotech winter started, probably in earnest November of 2021, I believe. And that would be a challenging time, you know, to raise if you were trying to go IPO then. So we're really fortunate to get the initial funding that we needed to carry us into clinical development and some of those catalysts that may come. And so right now I'm excited to watch basically the inflation get under control, right? There's some actual optimism, you know, out there, some bullish types of discussions, which is exciting to hear out there because you have to come out of these, any of these cycles all have kind of a lifespan, right? Yeah. But what's interesting is we've been very fortunate that the timing of our different catalysts and the development de novo of these molecules has tipped just right. So for example, we've also gone through COVID. And so when COVID hit, people are like, well, that must've set you back. It actually, we accelerated. And so it was just fortuitous because we were actually shifting some of the in vivo work that we were doing from the U.S. to Asia at the time when everyone was out of Asia because that was the initial wave. And so everybody that was in Asia, in China specifically, basically started to egress out of China. We were in the U.S. before the U.S. started to go down. And then as we were shifting out of the U.S. into Asia for some of these critical experiments, basically China was then coming back. And so it was just timing. And I would love to say that was planned and there was some genius there, but you know, sometimes you need to be a little lucky. And so for us, we've been fortunate on that. But at the same time, the 104 program that's in the clinic now has had extraordinary data with preclinical data that we've seen. We talked a little bit about translation and translational medicine. One of the things that we've been focused on is trying to differentiate using all of our models, right? Our preclinical TME models, the computational models, the basically all of these platforms. And what we're trying to do is to define addiction versus utilization versus non-utilization. Mm-hmm. And it sounds easy and it is easy to identify potential utilization and addiction. Do you have a mutation in this pathway? Yes. If you do, then you have the potential for a better response. That just says utilization, but addiction is different. Addiction is if you take away this pathway, it'll be catastrophic for the tumor, but not the host. And that's an opportunity for monotherapy. Utilization is that pathway plus other pathway drivers, other parallel pathway drivers. And if you take out just one pathway, compensation is already there, right? So adaptive resistance is instant. 
And then non-utilization is there's no use of that pathway. So targeting it wouldn't matter if you're in combination or monotherapy. So what we've been doing in this process as we're ebbing and flowing with the opportunities that the market affords as a publicly traded company is to make sure that our translational planning is integrated through the entire process. And so that I think is going to be part of the key for success. Yeah, it makes sense. When you look at sort of the broader market, what advice would you give to CSOs, CEOs who are currently in the private markets, thinking about either raising their next round or thinking about going public in the near future? What advice would you have for them? Oh, that's a great question. Pros and cons, both sides. I can tell you just from an IR, investor relations point of view, it's easier to be in the private side to have conversations because you can talk more openly about the excitement, enthusiasm, and everything else without a lot of the restrictions that you have when you're a public company. But the downside is, is that the cost of capital tends to be more because there's a big debate about, well, what is your value? Because the market isn't setting your value yep. in the private. It's just what you say and what somebody else will allow you to believe. So basically you have to show more for less on capital, but you can say more openly, right? So that's the pro and the con, the good and the bad of it. The good and the bad of being on the public side is you can't say as much. So you have to basically have these discussions or this dance to basically say, this is what I see. And I can point to something in the public domain to say, this is why I'm saying it, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be over-enthusiastic or under-enthusiastic, right? And the probably you have to walk this tight line. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. They have their pros and cons. Raising right now, at least I'm starting to see IPOs come back. That's mm -hmm. good to see. Yep. It's been a while. So I'm hopeful that we're really coming out of maybe the big thaw, the biotech thaw. And so if we can see that, then it'll be nice to loosen up capital overall. I am still very much watching the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, right? And now the lawsuits that are happening yeah, against the IRA, that's going to impact this market in this space, the sector, I should say. It's going to impact it and it'll impact it for years to come. Let's watch that because that's going to be an interesting impact for the biotech and biopharma community at yeah. large. What's your bet on the likelihood that the IRA will get, or at least the pharmaceutical provisions in the IRA will be repealed? Yeah, that's a good question. I think good chance for parts of them for sure, because I think being able to have an open competitive market is critical. It is woven into the fabric of this country, right? And the approach of what it is to be in America. But at the same time, there's some tenets of the IRA. I think that I understand where they're coming from. Even though the United States represents less than 5% of the population, it represents about 35 to 45% of the market, right? Mm -hmm. And so something's got to give, right? But at the same time, I don't know by stifling competition, that's necessarily the way to go. So I think parts of it will be repealed or changed through political processes yeah. or legal processes as to be determined, right? Yeah. Well, obviously as a small molecule company, definitely penalizes those in the small molecule space compared to biologics. And at least it's not clear to me exactly why that distinction should be made, right? At least from a legal perspective, but time will tell to see how some of these lawsuits pharma and others pan out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, as we wrap here, any final parting thoughts for the audience? I would say, you know, one of the things I worry about is just the next generation of scientists as they're coming in. The funding pay levels, you know, for research in the United States through the National Institutes of Health, NIH, have been low since I was faculty, right? <laughs> I mean, so even before, when I was in graduate school, the pay lines were 28, 29 percentile for oncology. And they've been mostly in the single digits ever since or the mid early 2000s. And so I just worry about this next generation of scientists, but also basic research, which is the cornerstone of everything we do in biopharma. And so I just hope that those that are out there, make sure you continue to fight the good fight, because honestly, I think the cornerstone of research with basic science 
leads to the translational discoveries and the R&D that fuels basically the entire pipeline. So it's the area that I'm actually most concerned about more than the market or what's happening specifically, but it's really the next generation. But stay strong, <laughs> let, you know, look around and know that you'll succeed and I think we'll be fine. Yeah, that's a great sage advice and commentary because I think it's so easy to get lost in the near-termism of the market or different disease areas. But definitely thinking about the long-term investment we should be making in this space is particularly critical. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brett, thanks again for being on the podcast today. Really excited for what's to come for Immuneering and hopeful to connect again as you have more interesting data to share. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.